You're joining us for episode 50 of the Rocky Talkie podcast after about a month and a half of uh, crazy busyness with catering and Christmas. Um, we are back and I can genuinely say I really missed being in front of this microphone and being at this table with people. Um, first off, episode 50, that's a really big deal. Um, Every time I climb the numbers, I'm like, oh, episode 20, what a nice ring to it. But there's something about 50 that's very benchmarky. And I remember, I've said this before a couple of times, when I was contemplating doing the podcast, I would practice my intro to some music I'd be listening to in the car. And I'd laugh at myself and feel really silly and stupid when I would say, hey, you're listening to episode 50 or episode 70. And I thought, well, you absurd goof. And, uh, we're, we're getting there. <clears throat> so uh, a huge thank you to everybody, literally all over the world that has tuned in. Um, we got the, diag- not the, not the diagnostics, but we got the data points and the, all the analytics that came through the last year just from one of the platforms on Spotify. And it was incredibly shocking, the placement that we found ourselves in with viewership and engagement. And uh, guys, I'm, I'm humbled and amazed um, at what's gone down in the last year and a half, which leads me to the scope and purpose of tonight. And I've been contemplating this for some time now, um, especially in the last year. Um, I really do believe that episode 50 is my time to reciprocate all of the honesty and um, transparency that I've tried to mine out of my guests Um and it's time for me to return the favor because I want to. I think partly, uh, also partly because I know it's going to be cathartic. Um, and you deserve to hear from a host because I shouldn't just be taking from people's st- stories. I, I need to be sharing it as well. And um, if anybody's listened for more than you know a couple episodes, you're gonna you're gonna catch certain glimpses of some of the stuff we're gonna talk about tonight. But um, tonight's gonna be kind of. Um, all about me in in the most ridiculous way of saying it. But um, what I mean by that is, is an element of my story that um, I feel like it's time to kind of share um, and something that I need to share to kind of uh, add to the overall healing and growth and trajectory of where this last season of my life has come. Um, and some of the things that have gone in my life. And this is, I think, part of the process. So I'm getting there, I promise. I, one of the things was, is do I talk about this? Do, is this a story worth telling? Um, is this self-aggrandizing? Is this um, self-indulgent? And then the other side of me is like, I think people, someone wants to hear it. Someone needs to hear it. Someone will understand the story. Someone will... Uh, maybe get pushed over the edge to a decision based on what they hear. I don't know. I just, good things have genuinely always happened when I've been honest and transparent. Um, so that's what we're going to do. And I've asked uh, my best friend, Rachel Shuttlesworth. Hi, Rich. Hi. Um, I'll give her a couple of seconds to actually speak after my big intro. <laughs> but um, I knew that I needed to be doing a lot of the talking, but I also didn't want to be going down this at times dark tunnel alone or this really large field alone. I wanted to have a warm body next to me that I love and trust and um, to help 
just fill the space and to see perspectives and um, mention things I may have missed. Because when you're standing in your own story, you can also drown in your story and miss other things. So Rach, um, you said yes last minute. So thank you. I trust you implicitly. I love you. Um, and you've come through your own fires and you're, you're currently going through a fire. And um, we've been hand in hand for a lot of seasons for 20 years now. Wow. And uh, I can't think of a better person to kind of handhold with during this. Yes. So uh, officially, Rach, welcome to the show. Um, thank and thank you for co-hosting this with me. You're going to just, I, I, to the listeners, I've given uh, Rach all the authority and mm-hmm. uh, freedom to kind of jump in and even help steer things. So five minutes in, what are we talking about? So um, I recently turned 45 years old and uh, a year ago on December or sorry, November 26th, I believe is the date, uh, I underwent um, the most extreme version of the bariatric procedure. It's called the Sadie S uh, procedure. It's like a duodenal switch kind of thing. Uh, and all that to say is, is it's really this. They take 80% of your stomach out of your body, uh, never to wow. be replaced again. Mm-hmm. And uh, my particular operation was also they remove the uh, small intestine. So over the course of 12 months, I am now down 182 pounds, <laughs> which is, Woo. yeah, which is, uh, incredible and insane, but, um, it was a really long road mm-hmm. to get there. I'm listening to the rain trying to come through my mm-hmm. hood. Um, there were times where I, I wondered if I'd ever see the end to the season of being unhealthy and morbidly obese and in pain and full of shame and self-loathing. And suddenly, uh, like in one of my posts on Instagram, uh, you have 50 pounds of clothing lying in a heap mm-hmm. and you're a different person. Yeah. And I, first of all, I'm so overjoyed and proud of you that you did this. I think that just as a jumping point, because I've had conversations, I've struggled in, you know, my time with being healthy and, you know, why do people wait so long? Why did you wait so long to, you know, we all, everybody tries fad diets and different things, but like what brought you to that breaking point? Because, now I'm sure on the other side of it, you're thinking I should have done this so long ago, but then also what life has been like on the other side of it is not easy. Mm -hmm. It's a great question. Um, and it's a a very astute one. I'm, I am struggling with the fact that I'm 45. I don't really look 45. I don't Mm -hmm. act 45, but I am aware of time and the value of time. And, um, what time is left. I'm probably smack dab right in the middle of my life, God willing, which is very bizarre. Um, and that's a whole other story unto itself. Why did I wait so long? That's a great question because I think one of my greatest gifts and one of my greatest downfalls is my ability to be long suffering. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I definitely suffered and prolonged um, 
and the outcome years longer than I needed to. This should have happened 10 years ago right? at 35. And even then that was probably too long. Um, I've, I've said this often as an analogy and I, I was like that even as a little kid where it was as though I was standing at a bus stop and a thief stole my watch and ran off. And rather than pursue the person and thump them and take it back, I would go, I would stand there and wait and go, well, man, I hope they get, I hope they come back with that watch. Yeah. So there was this like very significant disconnect with what was happening to me and what I could or should or would do about it. And I'm still trying to figure out why. I think the easy answer would be to, to, to blame it on low self-esteem, yeah. daddy issues and crap like that. But um, I don't know. There's a part of me that wonders if the time it took was part of the plan. Yeah. Because um, I know the weight, no pun intended, <laughs> of feeling ugly feeling unseen and feeling kidnapped by a persona that is not you. Mm-hmm. I spent about 25 years like that and it's taught me a humility. It's taught me a strength and it's taught me a gratefulness just to simply buy a pair of pants that are a 34 waist. Like, like right. just those basic, I don't, it's like when Scrooge wakes up, he, he suddenly the breeze coming through that window is the greatest breeze in the world. Right. Like I, everything is sparks joy. I'm like, Oh, that's so, Oh, that's a sternum bone. That's a collarbone. Oh, right. that's nice. So, um, Rach, I don't know why it took so long. Um, but when you marry someone who loves you and you start to feel the shame of what you're doing to them because they're terrified for your health, yeah, that starts knocking on a door that you didn't know existed in your home. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I put my wife through the ringer. She heard me snore and choke to death with apnea. Yeah. She saw me feel insecure on my wedding day because I didn't fit into my suit properly. She was there when the people at the men's store said, we don't have anything your size. Yeah. Um, she was there for me not being a good responsible husband because it hurt too much to do my job. There's so much to unpack. Like I, this needs to be like a four part series because it, it's just, True. there's so many facets to it. But um, I don't know, Rach, I need your help because I, 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 I need, I need help with what the skeletal structure needs to look like for this conversation. I don't know. I'm willing to give you every answer you ask of me, but I don't know exactly where to go other than I know I just need to share. Yeah. Some people, um, any one of us that undergoes like a major change in our lives. You know, you hear from like celebrities that all of a sudden make it huge, like overnight. And in their head, they're still the same small town kid mm-hmm. from such and such. And I know we've had conversations where you've said things like, I still have dreams mm-hmm. that I'm overweight still. Yeah. And I think that that's something really interesting to comment on is that you've undergone this massive physical change, but what's happening on the inside 
in your mental health, in the way that you can view yourself and in the way that you struggle mm-hmm. having dreams that you, you, know, mm-hmm. you get up one day and you're exactly how it was before. Cause that's very real. It is real. And I'm, I'm, I've, I've, I'm surprised by it. Um, I don't know if anyone's seen the movie Vanilla Sky, but there's a scene where Tom Cruise's character, he, he had a mangled face and, and there's an aspect of the movie where he gets his face back. And then, uh, suddenly the face, the, the torn up scar laden face just suddenly returns and he's tormented and terrified. And then he wakes up and it's a bad dream. Um, it's kind of like that. I, I've had dreams where I am 400 pounds again. So, so just so just to be clear, I, I had at my highest, I was 399 pounds. Um, so yeah, uh, I have dreams where I'm I'm back at it, and that that's that's pretty much self-explanatory. And it's it's in the dream. There's a lot of stress. It's it's up there yeah. with uh, having dreams of you know catering a wedding and not knowing what the menu is. It's a, it's <laughs> it's a bad scene. Where it really shows up is. Um, I'm mostly proud of what I see and love what I see, but there are highly critical moments that, that haunt me where yeah. I'm like, Oh God, why, why is, look at that loose skin. Oh, it looks like I have a, looks like I have a gut when I sit down or my, because of my loose skin or my, you know, my, my thighs, when I sit, my legs look, you know, fat or, um, I got to get on the scale. What am I weighing now? Yeah. The scale is a scary thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it keeps going in the quote right direction to the point now where I'm actually getting a little bit concerned. I'm like, uh, am I going to stop losing weight? But, uh, I'll, I'll be like, Oh, I had, you know, I went a little bit bonkers on those chips time to weigh in. I'm really afraid of getting fat again. And, and you know, I'm so much has changed in the landscape of what is politically correct and what is celebrated. Now I'm even afraid to even talk about being, F-A-T, overweight, yeah. obese, yeah. And, and looking like I'm having hate speech. Yeah. People can have a positive body image regardless of what size and weight you are. If you're happy being any size, God bless you. Yeah. For me, yeah. I was unhappy feeling the way I felt and looking the way I looked because I knew inherently, just to be clear, that was not who I was. Right. That is not who I identified with and that is not who I wanted to be. I had a construct in my mind of who I really was and I had to live with this imposter. So yes. I'm just going to get that out of the way. I can't believe I even have to say that, but that's where we're at right now. But yeah. um, so my, 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 here's why this is, this is, here's why that's absurd. My procedure is so extreme that I have the greatest odds at the most weight loss with the longest weight kept off. I'm, I'm virtually fat proof, like wow. just to be completely disgusting and, and transparent. If I eat something heavily greasy, mm-hmm. it doesn't stay in my body. It comes out Wow. and, I, and it's gross and yada, yada, yada. But, um, it, my situation is so extreme that I actually have to fight to find calories. They want me in excess of 2000 calories a day with limited space. So I'm basically grazing constantly. Um, and yet and even with, and with, a, with, a, with approaching 200 pounds lost, I'm still worried I'm going to go the other way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I, that makes sense. It's been 25 so, years exactly. of being one way. Like, I'm not going to relearn this in a year. No. But I don't know if that answers your question. But I, but I am, uh, 
All that to be said, though, I am. I would say that the majority of time, though, I am grateful. Yes. I'm very happy. I'm proud of myself. Not because I did anything. I, I The big thing I did was have the courage and the decision to put a stop to something mm-hmm. and, to, and to make an extreme move. I burnt the ship down. Um, so I yes. could not get back on it and leave. Um, but the procedure took the weight off me. Um, and I'm approaching who I've always wanted to be from being a musician to being a chef, to being a father, to a husband, to, I love fashion. Mm-hmm. I love clothes. I've always loved clothes, but I was like, what's the point? So I'd pour my money into outside things like guitars and go, well, if I can't wear what I really want to wear, I'll just collect things. So, um, all the neurotic, fearful things aside, I am genuinely, genuinely and generally overjoyed by what I'm seeing. But it's new. The beauty of this is obviously, like you said earlier, we've been friends for 20 years. Um, you've been a mentor to me, a brother to me, a co-writer to me. And it's so cliche, but it's like, many of the people around you have always seen you. Mm. The problem is, is when you don't see you the way that you know you're supposed to be. So like, I think the biggest joy for me is seeing you start to love you Mm -hmm. the way that everybody else around you has loved you. And seeing you step into like this confidence Mm -hmm. with yourself that it really, there were times where it was heartbreaking because picture someone you love so much in your life, like Lauren Mm -hmm. and picture Lauren just hating herself 24 seven and how upsetting that is. I feel like so many of us who have been close to you, the most upsetting part for us has been you know, you not seeing yourself mm-hmm. the way that we see you. And I feel like that corner slowly but surely is being turned. And you're right. Like, we don't change overnight, even though that physical change has happened, that emotional, mental. And I wanted to ask you what sort of emotional and mental things have been kind of cascading out as a result of this. And how has this affected your relationships with your loved ones, your wife, your father, your friends, because this is so much more than just, Oh, I had a surgery. This is like, yeah, it really is. The the surgery and the transformation is really the starting point. It's like getting your black belt and then you start all over again kind of thing. Um, I was able to prove to my wife that I'm more than what I was looking like I was for those first five years of marriage. I've, radically changed my work ethic and my pursuit of providing for my family simply because I can and it doesn't hurt. Exactly. Um, I feel a great sense of gratitude and gratefulness and joy that my wife is seeing a return on her patience. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny when you, when I made this decision to do this operation, a lot of things started to begin to get released and unlocked in my life. Uh, you know, my, I've had a kind of a weird, estranged relationship with my father who lives in Ottawa. And this past summer we had our, a benchmark first time, honest discussion 
about our story, why he left, how he left, how it really went down, his perspective and him asking for forgiveness and asking for me to release him and to basically put the power into my corner and decide whether or not I keep him a hostage or if I set him free. It was amazing. And I don't know if it would have happened um, if I didn't start with me. You always think that someone's coming for you. Right. Hmm. No one's coming for you. It takes time for you to realize like you've got to get yourself out of that burning house. And then you find yourself, you're actually saving other people out of their own house. So good. Yeah. Um, One of the other things I realized is that I, I wasn't addicted to food. I was addicted to quieting a storm inside me. Yes. Because now other things want to pull on me. Mm. like what I, which, which is really scary. You hear, you hear stories about people who get the procedure when they become alcoholics or they become drug addicts or they become this. Um, for me, it has, I have a very healthy fear of, of alcohol because I had some people in my family that I'm very close to drink a little too much. And it's very been always been very taboo for me. Yeah. And also I just generally don't like most of it, yeah. but, um, wanting to have a smoke at night, um, and then it pulling on me to have another one in the middle of the day. And I'm like, oh, that's new. Mm. So there's this like twiddling thumb, nervous energy thing that I realize I just landed on food and I stuck with it. Right. But it could have been anything. And I used to say stupid things to my wife. My like, God, I wish I was a drug addict because at least I'd be thin. <laughs> and she'd be like, are you the stupidest person in the, in the world that's ever spoken? She's like, that's the dumbest thing you have ever said. Because we know people that have struggled with drugs and it's destroyed yes. their lives. Yes. Um, but that's where I was. That's, that's where I was at. Wow. So um, I have a healthy respect for the fact that the body is the beginning point. Like I need to keep my mind sharp and, and rehabilitated and healthy. Yeah. Um, and I'm just turning that corner of that hallway. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I want to ask you this question because I really, truly don't know the answer. Some people, um, based on their family line, genetics, mm-hmm. you know, it's science. People are born with propensities to be overweight and things like that. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't your story. No. And I think it would be really cool to hear where this started. When you uh-huh. started f- noticing yourself using that vice which would be food that was the chosen vehicle Mm -hmm. at what point and what sort of drove you to that? I love you. (laughs) Great question. Um, My family is tall and broad and strong Mm -hmm. and and handsome and beautiful. Mm -hmm. I've come from a, a, a lovely family who are good looking people and great personalities. And this was an anomaly for sure. Um, I mean, I remember hearing stories like, well, honey, when you were, when you were four, you had the biggest appetite. You'd go to Harvey's and eat a whole hamburger and a French fry. And you like, you know, I had, I had a healthy appetite like my son, Sam. And I remember putting on a little bit of weight, getting a little bit stocky around grade four, because I come home with a voracious appetite and have like three hot dogs in the microwave and then dinner. (laughs) Um, So that was its own thing. But the moment where there was a crossing over point. It happened during March break 
grade eight and I was home alone. And my dad always had a stash of his own treats above the stove. It was like, that's his dad's chasm. Don't go in there. Um, and I had this thought pass through my mind. I'm like, oh, there's, dad has a, a bag of onion, uh, sour cream and onion chips up there. And I remember thinking, I'm not hungry. I'm just, but I'm going to have them. And I did. And then I wanted to hide the evidence. So I cut up the bag of chips and flushed it down my toilet <laughs> like an ass. Wow. And then clogged the toilet because it was basically tinfoil being flushed on the toilet. And then right. my dad had to dismantle the toilet and then he found the evidence and then he chased me down the hallway and kicked, literally kicked me in the ass. <laughs> and I was grounded for two weeks. Um, but that was a moment where I had made a conscious decision to do something even though I didn't really want it or need it. Right. And I have an appointment somewhere with some therapist to find out why. Um, I think boredom was part of it. I think I was getting older and starting to get unhappy about certain things, but there was that. And then secondly, I think that, um, at the same time, my grandma, my my grandma, Jesse loved me so perfectly. And, um, she was a safe place where I would run to when I felt kind of like the outcast stepson who was part of a new marriage. And I wasn't really part of that family dynamic. And, Part of her loving me was taking me for treats. And I think I also associated self-love with treats. Yeah. Um, and then there was also the feeling of because of rejection bullshit that um, I didn't have enough or, an, or what was mine or a, a comparison thing. So it, when I felt hungry, I felt like panic, like, oh, am I going to get enough? Am I going to get my share? And so I would like find creative ways to sneak more or get extra. And uh, I'm really glazing over the point on that. I'm I'm trying to be conscious of time, but it's interesting. My family is, because my family's talented and and good looking, um, they really didn't like seeing me get overweight. Right. And there were a lot of people very close to me that said a lot of hurtful things and um, called me pig, snorted like a pig at me because I ate too much. At a, at a time, or it took more than I should have. Um, I had people very close to me reprimand me and yell at me because my knees were getting chunky or I was getting man boobs. And they were yelling at me like they had caught me selling drugs or stealing the car, like, like I had done something very wrong. And so shame... Yeah. And embarrassment and self-loathing and, and guilt um, became immediately attached to what was on my body. And um, there were people in my life that when, rather than a soothing word would come, there was like vitriol and almost like hate for what they were seeing coming on my body. So that's kind of a composite of that. People don't realize, you know, being overweight, we're not special. If it's not this, there's something else that someone's dealing with, like whether it's sexual abuse or right. you know, rape or alcoholism. But there are so many stupid people out there that say stupid things that are in your purview where there should be a triangle of love and support. That's and instead right. they're going, Oh, you're getting, look at your hips. 
who were those, where'd he get those hips from? Or, oh, you're looking, well, you put on weight. Like just stupid, stupid, thoughtless, irresponsible, mindless statements. That's right. In passing that you're stuck with. That's right. That hangs off you for years. Mm-hmm. And um, that really pisses me off to this point. And, and you know, as a, as a parent now, I realize how easy it is to end up saying something that you think is something, nothing, and it sticks with them forever. That's so I'm right. trying to be very aware of that. So I'm not sure if that answers your question. It's just you collect things like burrs when you go through a hike and they're around your sweater. That's right. Um, and I'm not a victim, but totally. like that's part of my story. Like it's right. it's uh, I was taught that being hefty or chunky or stocky, heard stocky for a long time and then it turned into you gotta be better fix this you look like shit um was something to be embarrassed of and so i would choose not to go to weddings i would hide as i didn't want people to see me up until a year ago i would avoid all reunions bumping into anybody that hadn't seen me for five years anybody that would be shocked by my state i would avoid at all costs like like private eye cia duck and cover. <laughs> I was a mastermind at hiding. Yeah. It's heartbreaking to hear that. Um, because I just, I think that we've got to do better at the way that we treat one another. And I think that our generation as parents we really are so hyper aware of this having suffered, I think not like victims, but each generation has its thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't want to make this about myself, but I, I was, I've told you before that it's hard for me to remember as a child, like something super encouraging or being mm-hmm. told like, you're so beautiful or mm-hmm. things that I tell my kids like 25 times a day that right. they're probably like, mom, we get it. Yeah, I get it. I'm beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But how hearing that in your story, like, hello, the words that we speak mm-hmm. can make an impact Absolutely. on someone. And I'm just to hear that it makes so much sense. Mm-hmm. People don't just end up, in situations accidentally. Yes. There's a path, there's a, a snowball, so to speak, mm-hmm. that eventually becomes an avalanche. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's exactly what has happened here. And for you to, in the middle of the avalanche, just kind of go enough. Yeah. Not everybody does that. No, it's, it's true. Yeah, I was sick. Like shame, you know, rage more than anything, it was shame. Shame, if, if I could pick one word to what my team colors would be yeah, shame. Um, and a lot of that was downloaded to the people that loved me the most. And, you know, as a parent, you don't even have to try and you can still screw up your kids. Like my, my wife always wanted to be a singer and was convinced her mom told her she, no one would ever want to hear her sing. And that never happened. The mother never said it my wife thought it was inferred and implied by a statement my mother-in-law made accidentally, unintentionally, with no motive with that at all. Yet an adult woman took that to the bank. 
So like you, you don't even have to try at times and you can cause so damage, true. right? So I, as a parent, I'm very cognizant of the fact, like when I tell my son, I'm like, you know that you're the best boy I've ever met. You are the best boy. Or to Layla, like, you know, I'm so thankful that you're I'm your daddy. Like, mm-hmm. uh, because hopefully those words will cover the failures. Yes. But yeah, I don't know if I need to cry. <laughs> you know, it's quickly with you, like, I've always had great friends and I've always had handsome male friends. I've always had beautiful friends. Like you are, you are one of, you have, you, your face brings me joy. You're a beautiful woman. And the fact that you didn't hear that growing up is such a testimony to how parents can just get stuff wrong because like, it's such an obvious empirical fact. Rachel has a beautiful face. Why did you never hear that? And that's, and that's the question. It's like, why do we as parents, how do we miss that stuff? You know, like it's, yeah. it's not about weight. It's not about face. It's not about sex, drugs, alcohol. It's about the chasms of our heart. They're going to get filled with something. Yeah, they are. What are they going to get filled with? And, you know, I'm talking a lot right now. My kids are still easy. They're five and six, mm-hmm. four and six. Mm-hmm. Um, there's still a lot of life to learn and mistakes to to avoid but anyway that's I think that answered your question yeah it did it really did so what now what are some things that you're doing or that you're planning on doing that you would have never Hmm. pictured yourself doing a year ago well I love shopping (laughs) (laughs) like I mean the fact that I can go into like an H&M so I remember trying to go Oh, Rich. I, re- I remember walking into, first of all, I go to Marshall's and just find like the size 42 pant that would somehow look okay on me. Yep. The amount of times I had to fight, I, I would hide in the bathroom stalls fighting with zipping up or buttoning my pants at a wedding and getting Charlie horses in my stomach muscles because I was fighting so hard with my waste to like Rach wow. you have no idea no, how I many don't. events we've been to <laughs> these 20 years where I was either hiding in a bathroom yeah, yeah or fighting to get something on or crying out of frustration and uh oh god so to go to H&M and where and where everything's slim and wear a 34 waist and buy a large shirt and it fit like I'm wow. so happy yes um I can actually go like I've always said I'm like I'm I'm actually really cool. <laughs> I'm actually a Ferrari. Yes. But everybody thinks I'm a, I'm a moving van. <laughs> oh my God. And that's, but that's oh, the, or yeah. like, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm an otter, but I'm actually a lion. And, and that's, right. so, but Rachel, if I didn't struggle with, if I didn't have that though, I'm pretty sure I would have been a, a vacuous, conceited vampire. Yeah. Before I met you, I was on my way to acting and getting an agent. There's a chance I could have done it. Yeah. There's a good chance it would have been really bad. And so you watched, yes. me, I keep cutting you off, but I, I keep, you, you came along at the time I needed a spiritual awakening to take place the most ever. Yes. And you also witnessed me being buried neck deep underground for 20 years. You're, you're only now seeing yeah. the other side of me. It's so... It's just a way to look at things in life, which I think your story 
can encourage so many people listening that even the obscurity mm-hmm. can be used as a tool mm-hmm. to make you better, to make you more of the person that, and a lot of times it is through obscurity, it's through pain, it's through shame, it's through these hard things. Mm-hmm. You are right. It's like who knows the monsters that we could become <sighs> if we didn't suffer the way that we suffered. Mm-hmm. And so it's easy to say that now, though, in hindsight. For sure. And I'm sure in the middle of it, you didn't necessarily have that perspective. No, but I guarantee you, though, that if, that if Harry Potter walked back into his aunt and uncle's house and he opened that door under the stairwell and sat in his old hidden janitor closet room he'd he wouldn't cry he'd look around and he'd smile yes and he'd lie down on his bed and kind of be grateful for that time that's right and that's kind of how i feel um i can't believe you use the harry potter analogy but it is a beautiful it is a beautiful place and you know rich i always knew it would end yeah i always did um and there was that long suffering thing, but to go back to your question of what am I doing now that I could have never have done? Um, one of the big ones is, is I'm, I'm seriously, I'm likely going to join the military uh, in a reserves part-time component, right. but that's one of those lifelong chasms of my heart that has always, that has never gone away um, since I was a boy. And uh, once I hit a hundred pounds lost, I was like, ah, uh, that's not a, far-fetched anymore why would right. i do that um especially at 45 because i can yeah and because it's something i want to say i've done for the deepest parts of me and that little boy i want my children to know i did that um it's got nothing to do with blowing shit up right and killing people it's about being a part of an ethos and a brotherhood a storied regime of excellence and discipline and i can't think of something further than from where i've been totally to say like i never graduated high school like i the i daydream about graduating having a graduation ceremony in the army mm-hmm. i don't know how long i would do it maybe i'll do it for a year and quit but it's something that i know i need to do um i can't wait to go to the beach i can't wait to go camping with you guys i can't wait (laughs) to jump out of a plane and go skydiving Mm -hmm. wow just i can't wait i can't wait to do normal things yeah uh people think oh rocky hates the beach i don't (laughs) i just didn't want you to see what i was carrying um you know now i got a whole other set of insecurities like with my loose skin but i'll take that over you know whatever but yes no this there's a lot man there's a there's just a lot i even getting off the couch i'm like oh that was fun (laughs) so light anyway yeah okay so i don't know how much longer you want to do this but i do we're only at 39 minutes and we go a while so you at this point you tell me when you got your i i want to just if we want to round out this discussion of your um your weight i am wondering what you would say to people who are listening to this who are like you said earlier in the middle of decision making Mm -hmm. whether it's um, any kind of vice, whether it's smoking, whether it's food, whether it's any kind of addiction, like your clear evidence that you can wake up one day and 
say enough is enough. And I know that's not everybody's path, but what would you say to that person that is sort of being crushed under that avalanche? Here's my thing about advice. No one takes it. I never took it. Right. I, I heard, I listened to it like I was walking through a museum. I was like, oh, that's nice. That's nice, nice, nice. And I'd walk out and I'd, you know, I was like, hey, I looked at, I, I heard and saw a bunch of nice things and, and it's, it's there in, the, in my background, but it's not, you know, steering me. Um, hitting your rock bottom I don't know if there's a, everyone has a rock bottom, but it, you kind of decide where that rock bottom is. Real rock bottom is death. Right. Um, I guess you decide on how close to death you want to be. Mm. Um, some people are too far gone to catch the ledge and stop the fall. Some people are really responsible and will only dangle in a danger zone for a year. And then there's people like me who will do it for 25 years. Um, the only thing I'm willing to say that I think could stick to somebody is you have to ask yourself if you could have done it yourself by now, would you have, wait, let me rephrase that for me. I knew that I, if I could have done it myself, I would have done it by then. Yeah. And I couldn't. And so I pulled the ejection tab on my seat and went, SOS, this is bigger than me now. I need help. Um, and I need to match my, I needed to match my decision and response as dramatically as what was happening to me. And what was that? Cut my stomach out of my body. Why don't people ask for help? Shame, pride a clouded mental space. Yeah. I mean, like for me, I was, I was really good at asking for help. Really bad with follow through the amount of right. trainers. And I frustrated. See, I, I, I meant well, totally, but I was too, I was too much for myself. I couldn't, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I, I, the closest I could get to, to fixing the problem was, was smelling something from the other side of the room I was like, well, I'm probably not going to do it and I'm probably not going to lose the weight, but it does feel good to talk about it and to meet the trainer and to know my first training sessions coming up in a week. That feels good. That's right. something. Oh yeah. It's a trip to, to Disney, but I'm not going to move to Florida. I'll, <laughs> I'll take a Dumbo ride and, you know, magic mountain ride for a little bit and then I'll right. piss off the train operator and get kicked out of the park. <laughs> <laughs> but it felt good for that little while. Yeah. But I didn't actually change a dress. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. Um, I don't know how to answer that question. Like I, it's, it's, I've, I've listened to a lot of conversations and there's no one real answer for everyone. I would say that anybody that has a story similar to mine, you'll know when it's time to genuinely ask for help and when it's run its course. Some people just need to have things run its course. Yeah. I didn't stick with decisions because I hadn't run its course. Yeah. Is that, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. How do I give an answer that was designed just for me and, and yeah. pretend it's going to fit your story? Yeah. I don't know. I wanted to do it the old fashioned way and I wasted a lot of time trying to find the discipline to do it. I just needed to like burn the ship. Yeah. 
I want to. I want to circle way, way back. You're good at this. Thank you. You're, you're a good interviewer. <laughs> I didn't know how this was going to go. I want to circle back to the part because I think, in the spirit of your listeners knowing your story and getting to know you, yeah, you talked about, and I don't obviously you, you know, you share as much as you want. But you mentioned feeling like, you know, rejection and feeling like the outsider and all of that stuff. And while you know what you're talking about, mm-hmm. people who meet you would never guess right. that you are someone who grew up feeling that way. You're very much known for making people feel like family, making people feel included and I think people would assume that you come from a family or an upbringing that really isn't the case. And how much of this are you willing to share? Because I think it means a lot for people to know your story. You mentioned having this encounter with your birth father, but then you talked about you have a stepfather Mm -hmm. as well. Like what from the beginning, what, was your formative years like being you? I think some of the funniest people like comedians are some of the saddest people. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm not even going to put myself into that category. I'm not a, I'm not a sad person. I'm I'm a melancholic person, but that's just the cut of my jib. Yeah. I'm I'm a little bit like a Wednesday Adams. Um, Uh, I have a kind of, you know, a resting bitch face, but, I, but I'm also, I have like, it's a duality thing. Like yeah. I'm, I'm introverted and I'm also incredibly loving and encouraging and whatever. I do know that it can be confused. My, my poor wife. Um, mm-hmm. but my mom lost the love of her life in the process of finding out she was pregnant and it just didn't work. And my dad, um, you know, now that I've heard his true story, he was, he he was starting to not fall out of love with my mom, but he was moving on. Yeah. And then the anchor of pregnancy tried to keep him and everyone around him was trying to tell him to like do the right thing. And he's like, who are you? I had all these people telling me what I should do. And for me, I felt that if I stuck around and did the right thing, I would actually do damage to you and your mother. Wow. And um, I, it seems selfish, but I had to find my way, my way. And I get that. Um, I was raised by a lovely village of a family and I was the apple of many people's eye because I was the first kid and I was, you know, whatever. Um, and I would hear things like, Oh my God, that face he made, he looked just like his father. And I would try to replicate the face in the mirror to see what my dad would look like. I'd be like seven years old. I'm like, dad. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and then my mom met, you know, my stepfather when I was five. And, um, I think I had an idea in my mind what a dad, a daddy should be doing. I remember trying to wrestle with him and he wouldn't like reciprocate or he would like come in and take over and like change the channel. And I'd be like, Oh, I want to watch that. And he like click. It was nothing inherently evil, but it was this feeling of like, 
a stepfather came into the picture when it was just my mom and I, and I really had a hard time feeling like I wasn't getting bumped out. And then my, their first child, my brother Joel was born within a year from their marriage. So I think I kind of subconsciously felt that there was a divide. There was a, there was a difference between me and that, that unit. And I remember I didn't even like coming down to breakfast in the morning. I didn't feel like, I felt like I was, you know, when you go to someone's party and you wake up in the family's house and like, you're the last one there and you're like, hi, Mr. Smith, I'm Rachel. <laughs> Can I get a ride home? You, you yeah. feel really bizarre. Yeah. There were times where I felt like that. Um, and then when you realize that there's a, there's a patriarchal side of your life, like a father and his family and you meet them and you really like them, but you don't have access to them. It's like, seeing a really lovely family with your DNA on the other side of the fence. And all you can do is kind of pass drinks through the fence and only see them go to their backyard every once in a while. And then you have to go back home. I belonged to one camp, but had no access to them. And I had to learn how to get comfortable in another camp called home that I wasn't really intrinsically tied into. So I think that created a sense of, um, unsafe not just not not a lot of common ground and safe ground like settled ground i and i got really pissed off as a kid as a teenager and i rebelled and i didn't want to go to school and i didn't go to school and i got kicked out of three high schools and i was just pissed off and went the other way that makes sense mm-hmm. all the while knowing that there was a, there was the concept of God and, and church and spirituality that was always in the, in the purview as well. That was always kind of anchoring me as well. And that's why when I came to church and I met you and your family, it was, uh, it was literally at the crossroads of my life and, and it picked up from there. But did that, does that answer mm-hmm. your question? Mm-hmm. I, I, I realized in the last year and a half that when my mother was going through the most traumatic thing of her life, I was inside her body. Ingesting her blood, breathing her oxygen, eating her food, and hearing her cries inside her body. So I think I was formed in a womb that had a lot of love, but how do you, even as 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 an infant, I was inside a person's body while they were dealing with a breaking heart. I think that leaves a stain on you. Yeah. And sets the sets the table. That's right. Am I, am I making yeah. sense? I'm going to ask oh, this yeah. question a million yes. times. I'm not used to talking for this long, so I want to make sure I'm not like going on a on a tire, tirade here. But um, I mean, it's to quantify it all. I, I was surrounded by such great love, but but there is a there is a big schism that takes place when another man marries your mother and has children, and you're not one of them. He's my stepfather is a lovely man, but he wasn't mine and I wasn't his. And there are some things you just can't pretend. I was someone else's kid and you take that with you. You feel it despite his best efforts. Yeah. Do you feel like that sort of aided your ability in songwriting and in music? Like, you have a depth in feeling, in playing, in singing, in writing. It's like um, an intangible 
And I always think that the greatest writers and musicians, they're always coming from that place of without. Mm-hmm. Longing. Yes. Uh, ill at ease, melancholy. Yeah. And I, I was... I was in love with that for a really long time. Like, oh, it's the, I, it's the dark gift. <laughs> you know, I want to be like Lestat, the vampire. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm so deep. Um, you know, and it served its purpose for a really long time. And then you reach a certain age. I was like, oh, this isn't cute anymore. I'm just kind of fucked up. I need help. Yes. But, um, yes. And I, as, a, as a young kid, I was hosting podcasts at seven. I grew up with adults everywhere. I grew up in a hair salon. I was conversing with people well beyond my pay grade as a young kid because I was able to, by virtue of the fact that I saw through multiple layers, I saw more than my age should have seen. I felt things to a great depth. And those feelings also made me feel really lonely at times because I was feeling and seeing and experiencing and contemplating things that my peers just weren't. Right. So I was like a freak. It's like, why do I feel this way? And everyone's like, you know, do you, know, you see SNL last night? It's like, I'm, I'm tormented. Why? What's wrong with me? So, uh, a lot of times, your gift feels like a curse yeah. until you learn how to handle that weapon. Yeah. But yes, I think it's definitely aided all those things. Um, and I don't want to paint a really bleak picture. Like there were there were things, but like you know, I. I come from a really colorful, lovely family and I'm, I'm, I know how to like give that out. Yes. So why did you start this podcast? Knowing what we know about you. Yeah. Not everybody decides to care about other people's stories. And I love So I I got a spiritual download about 10 years ago where I was told this just shy of an audible voice that it would that Rocky this is what your life would be built on three things to create to communicate and to encourage um when I'm in my rightful place as a human being I'm doing all those things at any given time with people. I find myself celebrating people. I find myself genuinely asking questions about people because I see how it brings life to people when you ask them a question about themselves. Yeah. I'm fascinated by the fact that every single person has a fascinating story. Yeah. If you actually give a shit enough to ask what, it's, what it is. Mm-hmm. And I love making people feel good about themselves. I'm, and I just enjoy talking to people. I love conversation the way I love, um, you know, sketching in a notepad mindlessly when you're on the phone with a friend, I just, it just feels good to just be at a table and to talk. Mm-hmm. It's the most human thing. It's an art form. A good conversation is as, as exquisite as steak, a symphony, a great movie, a beautiful song. And there are people that are convinced they don't have a story to tell. What I'm good at is mining out people, a fantastic story. And I, and one of the things I'm most proud of about this podcast is people, number one, they become friends at the end of it. Yeah. And number two, they'll text me and say, I feel like I just left my therapist. Mm -hmm. 
The only reason why they feel that way is because somebody actually gave a shit and asked them questions about them. That's right. And that's all therapists do. They ask yeah. you questions about that's you. Right. They make you do all the answers. Yeah. That's all we're doing here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm an old soul and I'm, and I'm old fashioned. I really like watching Johnny Carson and the, you know, um, the great interviews from the fifties and sixties where men and women had really informed opinions and responses and really great questions were being asked. I feel like it's an art form that is needs to be fought for is a really good question and a really good answer. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to be a part of that. I think you're so good at it. Um, because of your story and you know, recently I've been going through a ton of health stuff and my husband talk about it. He, Okay, so I was recently diagnosed with cancer, which is unreal. I was 33. I'm now 34, mm-hmm. freshly 34. And um, it's just never the thing that you think you're going to ever experience. Mm-hmm. It's for other people, but it's never going to happen to you. Yeah. That's why I totally am so happy that you just kind of made the choice to prioritize your health because um, you could. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they've been trying to figure out what's wrong with me for three years now. And it wasn't until a flop x-ray. I was having some pains. I thought I had kidney stones. And they found a tumor like the size of a water bottle just growing off my stomach in the middle of all my organs. And it was cancerous. And um, I have to say that the last four months of... My eyes being opened, I see people differently. Mm. And it's like your ability to empathize and understand and care. I really believe that we are innately selfish, like a lot of the times. Mm -hmm. But when we go through these challenges, it helps us see each other. Mm with so much more love and compassion and care and, you know, being able to share one another's burdens, which is really what's happening in a podcast like this. People are sharing their life's burdens and somebody else is actually caring and shouldering it. And so I think that the reason why this podcast is so successful and so interesting is because of your story. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really glad that people are hearing it mm-hmm. and people now know sort of the why behind the what yeah. of your view on life and the way that you see people and care about people. And I'm just encouraged by this whole conversation. Me too. I mean, I, I have seen that change in you for sure. I mean, I've, I've watched you go through a fire these last longer than three years let's be honest it's been yeah a, a good a good five years but it was definitely been coming to a climax this last you know little season but there is something to be said for the fire um you know i thought that this was going to take two hours but I'm, I'm realizing like we we've covered a good amount of ground and i don't want to over overextend it longer than it needs to but um i think The takeaway is that if there's a little voice inside your mind 
or your heart or your spirit that that's saying, I know the reality of things is overwhelmingly truthful right now. Mm-hmm. But there's, there's even a crack of a window open where you feel like one day it will end. Mm-hmm. It will end. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether it's by your own hand or you doing an extreme parachute pull or asking for help or whatever, as long as you don't take your own life, um, there is always a shot for transformation and redemption. Um, here's the advice I'll give. Be honest. Yeah. Just tell the truth. Just share with people what you're going through. There's healing in it. Mm-hmm. Hearing it come out of your own mouth, there's healing in it. And you know what? It, it heals people hearing it. Yeah, it does. So, yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think that's, the, that's kind of the takeaway. Like, yeah, it is. The, <laughs> what, what, what else is there to say other than the fact, like, I could bore people with, like, you know, all those, those, those filler moments of, like, oh, this, I remember this dark time and this moment and this. <laughs> um, People who struggle with addiction or obesity, uh, there's an easy propensity to roll your eyes at them and to think they're weak. Uh, They're actually incredibly strong people Mm -hmm. because you're carrying with you the burden of what you are. Right. And in terms of obesity, you have to carry it on you everywhere you go. You can't hide like you can't be a uh, day drunk or a, a high functioning alcoholic or right. uh, do cocaine in the privacy of your home. When you're overweight, mm-hmm. it's on you, sis. That's right. You can't hide that. And yeah. so like, uh, and, it, and it's a lot of work humping that weight around. Mm-hmm. So the next time you see someone and you want to go, oh, go to the gym. Yeah. Um, there's a lot more strength in that person than you think. Totally. So we're at we're at an hour, um, and I'm just feeling my gut that we're we're kind of there. Yeah, but um, is there anything in closing that you feel like maybe we need to quickly go over? No, I really liked what you said about even if there's just a shred. Yeah, all it takes is a shred of hope. Mm-hmm. It, that's really what it is. Mm-hmm. It's like a still small shred of hope. And I think your takeaway is exactly the takeaway. And um, I obviously am hoping for my situation and really I haven't let myself go down any sort of dire path because life's already hard enough. Mm -hmm. And um, I think if for people listening, just hanging on to that shred, that small voice that you know that one day it's going to be over, that one day you are going to get to that point if you're not there now. Mm -hmm. And like you said as well, just looking at people with compassion and kindness. And if we had more of us that actually lived that way, this world honestly would be a lot better of a place. So 
Thank you for letting me be a part of this. Thank you for saying yes. Uh, there is, there's, you can, you can hang up your hat of interviewee. There's, I feel like I owe a couple of stories that are significantly tied to the dark days that I have to, I have to regale. <laughs> um, and going through them, here's the thing about going through really shitty things mm-hmm. with enough time and enough obedience to do the right thing off the heels of those things, they become great stories. Yes. But um, I remember I would literally borrow people's cars, find excuses. The the McDonald's at Dundurn and King, (laughs) I must have gone there a thousand times. And I would get my Big Mac and get my McDouble and my fries and listen to music and start out enraptured with the food and then towards the last couple of bites hating my life yeah. and sitting hiding hoping I would never bump into somebody pulling in at night at 1130 o'clock you know mm-hmm. in my car <clears throat> and going I wonder when this will end yeah and I wonder if I'll ever talk about this like it's something I used to do wow and uh, the shame of crushing that food and it was oh so lovely yeah. and then throwing the bag out and going oh yeah. so this was the this was a significant low for me mm-hmm. and it kind of set the stage for a three-year journey towards my decision to get the surgery i was with my children and i went to mcdonald's and got a double Big Mac with extra sauce and murdered it. The kids got chicken nuggets. And I went home and uh, I wasn't hiding it, but I also wasn't going to advertise to my wife who was concerned about my yeah. money spending on frivolous things in my health that I went to McDonald's. Mm-hmm. And uh, she asked me, I don't know if it was that same day or later the next day, like, Hey, what did you guys go to eat? And I outright lied. I I think, I don't know what I said, but it wasn't McDonald's. (laughs) And, um, I remember throwing the bag out and then removing the garbage bag from my garbage bin so that my wife wouldn't find the evidence evidence. And then I went so far as to remove the garbage bag of my McDonald's shame from the house property entirely and put it in the trunk of my car and dropped it into the bin behind my restaurant. Wow. And my wife's like, I don't believe you. What did you actually do? Did you go to McDonald's? And I, and I gaslit her up and down and made her feel like a piece of garbage. Yeah. And, uh, I was at work and my word wasn't enough for my wife. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was in between making orders on the line as cooking and she storms in and throws a receipt at me. Wow. With my order. She went dumpster diving into the backyard of my restaurant and found the evidence. And she loved me enough to jump in to a a, gar- a restaurant's garbage bin wow. and rooted through it like a, like a raccoon <laughs> to find me out. And she threw it at me and rich. I've, I've never felt so small 
and yeah. so terrified and so, oh my God, I've blown it. And she was screaming at me mm-hmm. with the door locked and the window up and hitting the car window saying, how could you do this to me? And I was three centimeters tall. And I was like, babe, babe, please let me in. It was, I was crushed under the weight of everything I did and didn't do. That was a significant moment um, that I was so embarrassed by. That's what my decisions came to. So tonight, this conversation is a monument moment. Oh, yeah. now you just told those two stories. Yeah. From a place that it's hard to imagine. Now it is. Doing that now. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's, and, then, and then in closing, and this will be the last story, that's tied to McDonald's. And I still love McDonald's. Sure. And because it's, I, was, I was a kid from the 80s, and yeah. it's like there's nostalgia attached to it, yada, yada, yada. I was <clears throat> four days away from starting my, my two-week fast leading up to my surgery, and I had to do a liquid fast. And I was like, you know what? I'm not going to see my friends for a long time. I need to say goodbye and have a little goodbye treat. Yeah. So I'm like, I have dinner coming up. I'm just going to go get like, you know, a little McDouble and a small fry and just something. And I got into the the drive-thru and I started pulling out and uh, I was like, my inner voice and us believers, Christians would say the Holy Spirit was like, get rid of it. Wow. Have I told you the story? No. And I was like, okay. I'm like, okay, fine. If I see a homeless person, I'll give it to them. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm driving out of the drive-thru and into the plaza and I see this woman near a garbage can. I'm like, ma'am, are you hungry? And she's like, no, she wasn't actually homeless. I just think she thought she was homeless <laughs> and she was near a garbage. And I was like, okay, I guess I'm not supposed to give this away. And I just, the, the longer I sat in the car and was driving away, the more indignant and, and, um, tormented I became about my inability to step away from this thing. Even on the precipice of a life-changing res- uh, surgery, right. I was like, I still want this. Mm-hmm. So I drove down the side street on my way home and I pulled over into a dark alley, rail- railway side street near my house and I grabbed the bag of food and I squeezed and strangled the life out of it with all the contents in it. Like I poured, I, I was, before this happened, I was waiting for the food and they asked me to pull up because they were behind. And I remember, and I looked at McDonald's while I was parked waiting for my food. And I said out of my own mouth and I laughed and I audibly said, you have destroyed my life Yeah. while I'm waiting for the food. Wow. And that's when the voice said, get rid of it. So anyway, when I pulled over, I, I condensed the contents of that bag through strangling it and threw it out of my car violently. And it was a full year before I had ever had McDonald's again after that. So there was, there was a distinctive like line in the sand where I'm like, Nope. Mm -hmm. And then the surgery happened. So anyway, that's, those are, those are key takeaway stories I I had to share, but uh, Rich, thank you so much for being here. And um, why I love you is you're going through your own gauntlet 
yet you're willing to ask me questions about mine. And um, you're the toughest person I know, and I love you dearly. And to everybody listening that has been with us, um, this is a very small token of gratitude and transparency um, to share with you my parts of my story. I, there's a good chance we'll revisit this in different capacities and aspects, but this is at least a starting point of uh, a, a glimpse into where I've been with certain things. And uh, maybe I'll give you some context if I talk about things in the future, but uh, I'm excited to say that January is um, all booked up with guests and we're getting into February and I'm very excited for this next year. And um, for, for that person listening in Germany or Japan or you have no idea what it's like to see uh, your analytics pop up in our thing and seeing that little Japanese flag or that Irish flag and saying, Hey, I'm listening to your show. I'm, I'm so grateful. I'm humbled from all of you guys and your support. Uh, and uh, I pray that 2000, 2000, 2023 will be a, uh, a year of rest and peace and joy for you guys listening. And uh, that's what I'm hoping for as well in my own life. And uh, thank you guys for being here. Rachel, I love you. Love you too. Thank you thank so you. much for your time. And guys, we'll see you for episode 51. Thank you.